Good morning. So, as Dr. Brown mentioned, I'll be doing my talk today on how interventional radiology interfaces with the pediatric patient. Okay, so first, we'll just go over the purpose of the talk today, which is first to define the principles of ALARA, which will come next, and that's about radiation minimization, especially in pediatric patients. Um, and how those principles are used in the practice of interventional radiology. Um, we are going to list what interventional radiology can do for the pediatric patient. There are some updates to this list um, that some people may or may not be aware of. And then um, I will also demonstrate cases for you for what we have already done for pediatric patients, either here using CT, ultrasound, or fluoro, or over at the um, Hartford Hospital in the interventional radiology suite depending on what needs to be done. So there'll be lots and lots of cases. So ALARA, as low as reasonably achievable. This is what we all strive for, especially in interventional radiology, where there can be some pretty high doses, depending on what kind of cases we're doing. Um, this means making every effort to minimize the amount of ionizing radiation to the patient, being mindful of the cost benefit of dose reduction. So you wouldn't want to skimp too much and then have to do a whole other CT because you didn't do it quite right the first time because you're trying to be a little bit too careful about it. So it's a very uh, important balance that we all have to strike when we're doing uh, especially pediatric patients, but really everyone. Uh, so we can, in IR, we can use the physics of imaging to really reduce that dose by moving the image intensifier, moving the patient, coning down collimating. So that's extraordinarily important for us. So now I will introduce you to what we can do for the pediatric patient. Uh, things that are done uh, include intussusception or volvulus reductions. That's done in the fluoro by pediatric radiologists mostly, um, exclusively. Uh, needle biopsies of pretty much anything that can be seen. Uh, arthrograms, joint injections, drain placements, whether it be for abscess, in the chest for empyema or um, pneumothorax, hydropneumothorax, postoperative collections, ruptured appendicitis per se. Uh, we also can do percutaneous nephrostomy and biliary interventions uh, for obs obstructive diseases. Um, we do uh, vascular malformation sclerotherapy and embolizations, and that can be a high flow arteriovenous malformation. Uh, it could be a low-flow venous malformation, or it can be a lymphatic malformation. Those are the three main types of malformations that we can uh, embolize and reduce the size of. Um, and then there's also tumor ablations and embolizations, much more common, obviously, in the adult realm, but those principles remain the same for when you're treating pediatric patients as well. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail later. And then there's, um, of course, emergent arterial embolizations for things such as traumas, um, hemoptysis in cystic fibrosis patients. Typically that happens in their 20s, um, but it can happen obviously in teens as well uh, with the massive hemoptysis, <coughs> life-threatening of course. Things that we don't do, although there are exceptions, interventional radiology does not take care of the central venous catheters. That's typically done surgically, although I will tell you I have done tunnel hemodialysis catheters in kids here. Um, and then percutaneous enteric tube placement is also typically done by the surgeons. Although, again, we will do pretty much anything that people ask, um, obviously within reason, um, but there's always exceptions to the rule. 
So uh, we will dive right in here. So I'm showing you sigmoid valvulus reduction mainly because it's a lot more rare than the intussusception, and so it, the <coughs> presentation with the contrast enema is a little bit more dramatic. So um, it's associated with Hirschsprung's disease. So the goal with sigmoid valvulus is, if you look at this chart here, everything ends up with surgery eventually um, because this is a, a major problem. Uh, if you can reduce it using contrast enema, you can take an emergent situation and turn it to an elective situation where you can go through bowel prep and do it in a more planned and staged way. So um, if you have a child coming in with abdominal distension, oh, this is what a sigmoid valvulus looks like. Obviously the bowel can become quite necrotic as it twists on that pedicle. So this is um, obviously an emergency. So you get the KUB and you can see over here this coffee bean-like appearance of this big loop of sigmoid. So that's pretty classic for a volvulus, is what we call a coffee bean. Um, so this child's obviously an extremis. So you do a contrast enema. So this is the child in the lateral view with the enema going in. And you can see the contrast now filling in the, recto, the sigmoid in the rectum. And you just keep filling. And what you're looking for is a bird's beak type appearance and that's going to show you where the twist off is, where the volvulus is. So you just keep going and you can see this big air distended portion is not filled yet. And that's because the twist is coming. So you can start seeing that bird beak's appearance right here. And a little bit of contrast is now squeaking through to that next loop of bowel. And you can see here, this is the twisted off pedicle right there. And you keep going. And you keep going. And there, now you can see where it's actually twisted. Um, and then you keep pressurizing, and then the contrast will eventually, hopefully it can be reduced. If it can be reduced, you put in a larger tube, a larger rectal tube here. And now the child is decompressed, safer situation. Here's the post film. So now you can see that coffee bean huge loop of sigmoid is now reduced. There's a large caliber tube in there. We're keeping the child decompressed so you can go to surgery. So now you can see this is the post-op film. Here are the surgical clips down here. Had a sigmoidectomy. And he's a little distended here, but that's not completely abnormal. So sigmoid volvulus, very rare. But luckily, this child was able to be reduced and went to an elective surgery instead of emergent. So we'll move right along into percutaneous biopsy. So the most common things that we biopsy really are thyroids and kidneys are really the most common. We also do livers. We can do targeted livers for metastatic disease or, um, or staging. Um, more common is a non-targeted biopsy. Something people may not be um, very aware of in the pediatric world is transjugular biopsy. This is done for um, people that are anti children that are anticoagulated either purposely or just by the nature of their liver disease. And it's a much safer biopsy in someone who has that issue because it's all done intravascularly. So if they bleed, they're bleeding into themselves. So they won't actually have any net loss. Um, if a transjugular biopsy, and we can also measure portal pressures. If the child may have uh, some degree of cirrhosis, we can also measure pressures and grade the degree of that cirrhosis. This is not a very common procedure. If it is something that you would need, then we would be happy to do it. We just need to know in advance because we have to order a special kit for the child. Um, so that's something that maybe people aren't totally aware of. Kidney biopsies we do not uncommonly. Usually it's non-targeted for medical <coughs> renal disease. 
Um, but we can also do targeted, although that's, again, much more of um, the adult realm. Um, bone biopsy, uh, we're doing a bone biopsy this afternoon, actually, in the CT scanner. Um, lymph node biopsies, very common. And then again, anything that we can see, we can biopsy. And sometimes we, we biopsy things, and it can be a little risky. Sometimes you have to go transgastric, say, to get to a really deep node. So there, you know, we talk very closely with the clinicians, and we work hand in hand uh, to, to get to what you need done. So first we'll look at some thyroids. So this is what a thyroid looks like on a transverse view of the ultrasound, basically looking at it this way. So I'm just pointing out a couple structures here. This is a typical solid hypoechoic thyroid nodule that we would go after. This is the carotid, and this is the trachea. So um, although these can be done blindly in the office by endocrinologists, when they're this small, they're obviously much safer done with uh, ultrasound guidance. So we use very, very small needles to get to these. Uh, we typically will sedate the patients for these. It's not very painful. We use only 25 gauge needles for it. But obviously, pediatric patients, they are very nervous. So this is a, a live case. Um, what I'm showing you here is, again, the carotid over here, the trachea over here. And it's hard to see because this is a, um, um, a cine. This is a, basically a movie of the biopsy. So I'll show you what it looks like. But there is a nodule right here. It's heterogeneous, echogenic, hypoechoic. So this is obviously, it's over a centimeter, so we biopsy these. What you see here is a thin echogenic line. This is the needle going into the nodule here. So I'm just gonna click through so you can see, as the needle goes in, we use capillary action in order to get the, the cells to scoop up into the needle. So we basically just jiggle it into the nodule like that. And so you can see how close you are to very critical structures. So sedation is pretty important for the younger kids because you don't want them jumping when the needle is this close to vital organs, vital structures. It's 25 gauge, it's not really gonna do anything, but still, it's fancy the other way. Okay, liver biopsies. So liver biopsies in, the, in kids, not that common. Um, most of the times it's done for rejection, biliary disease. Um, and unfortunately, increasing childhood obesity, there's fatty liver diseases that we've been asked to biopsy as well. So uh, this is an ultrasound image of uh, a liver. So this is the liver capsule here, this really strong echogenic line, and then this is the liver tissue. And you can see these little train track looking lines here, those are portal triads. So along the portal triads run the portal vein, biliary duct, and the artery. So you definitely don't wanna biopsy anywhere near that. So you really look for a really nice, plain-looking piece of liver. Right about here would be good, because there's not a lot of big blood vessels <coughs> running in there. So these are two images. This is the biopsy needle here. We use a coaxial needle. Uh, so there's a sharp inner trocar and then uh, a double wall outer needle. So the sharp trocar and the outer portion go in. They engage the capsule, and the tip is sitting right about here. So then once you're inside the liver and you have to kind of pop through the capsule, then you take the inner trocar out, you put the biopsy gun in, and then you hit fire, and it shoots uh, a two centimeter core of that liver. Now the nice thing about using this coaxial system is that when you're done, you take the biopsy specimen out, examine it, make sure it's a nice full core, and then through, you still have your access needle in. Through that, you puff a little bit of gelatin sponge and that will go in, seal your tract, and reduce the risk of bleeding 
we also will apply 10 minutes of pressure directly to that biopsy site in order to further reduce the risk of bleeding. So it's actually quite safe, and we have not had very many bleeding complications from these at all using this combination of techniques. Very, very safe uh, procedure. And that's liver biopsy. So the next we'll do is renal biopsy. I spent a little bit more time on this because it really is a more, a more common thing. Typically, it's for medical renal disease. Uh, they do need, the nephrologists and pathologists request very large gauge cores, so 18 gauge cores. For livers, we can get away with 20, but these are big, and they need a lot of them. And the reason why is because they uh, sometimes will have to count the glomeruli and get really strong cytoarchitecture. So uh, the bleeding risk is not insignificant. We actually had an M&M about this last year because there were uh, a string of actually pretty significant bleeding events from these. Since that M&M, uh, we haven't had a single uh, severe bleed. So some very good things came out of that M&M, which was a combined M&M with pediatric nephrology and interventional radiology. So uh, we work very strongly with the nephrologists before we do these biopsies. We ask them what the, what the reason is and how many cores they think they need, because for some things they just need to stain it. For others, they really do need that cytoarchitecture. We also have the pathologist in the room with us, with the microscope, counting glomeruli there to make sure that we take the minimum number of biopsy specimens absolutely necessary. So this combination has been done and it really has reduced our bleeding risk significantly. Most of these are done under ultrasound because most kids are pretty skinny and you can see the kidneys very well. This one I'm gonna show you under CT guidance because it also shows you the anatomy um, and a demonstration of how CT guidance can help. So this child has a pretty significant amount of subcutaneous fat. So we decided to do this child under CT guidance. So here you can see the biopsy needle. Again, this is a coaxial system, just like I showed you in the liver. It's, it's the same exact needle, actually. So you can see the needle coming in. This is the t very, very tip of the kidney, because you want to get the cortex where the glomeruli are. Here's colon, here's small bowel. So that's why it's so important to use direct visualization when you do these. And a nice thing is you can actually use the artifact of the shadow from the needle to show you where your needle's gonna go. So especially when you're going really deep into a patient and you've got a long way to go, it really does help. So you can see they're gonna, there is still gonna get kidney here, and then you shoot the fire, and there's your little core. So then Dr. Carden will look at it and make sure the specimen is good. He says it's good and you're all done. So that's quite nice. Uh, sacrum biopsy. So we do bone biopsy as well. We use a drill to get into the bone to do this. So here's a lytic lesion, here's the neural foramen, and here's a lytic lesion eating away at the bone here. So uh, we go in, and then there, now there's a little bit of air because when you aspirate, the bone marrow creates a vacuum. So we did an aspirate, and then you throw in a core, and you take your sample. Uh, so the drill is actually uh, quite nice. And then I'll show you uh, iliac bone biopsy. So uh, this is what looks like an aneurysmal bone cyst. There's blood levels in it. So this is almost diagnostic, but not, not quite because these um, ABCs, aneurysmal bone cysts, they can be associated with malignancies. And so every now and then we're asked to do a biopsy. So this is how you start the biopsy. You, target, you put this little grid over the patient, and that's gonna show you so that you can use as little radiation as possible. You mark the skin without even having to radiate the child as to where your needle is gonna go. So here's the needle going in. You engage the iliac wing, and this is the, the hands of the interventionalist. The reason why that's necessary is there's so little cortex here that it can't actually hold the needle in by itself. So unfortunately, every now and then we get a little radiation. 
but it's a very low dose CT, so it's okay. And then you can see here the needle going in, and then in, and then you fire a core, and go a little bit deeper, and you fire more cores. You have to get a lot of samples with these ABCs because you can, you can miss uh, lesions easily, so you have to get into the periphery. And so that's obviously done here in the CT scanner. Arthrograms, uh, we won't spend a huge amount of time on because they're pretty straightforward and simple, but this is a hip. Uh, the needle goes in. We go laterally because the artery and vein are right over around this area. So we go laterally. You squirt in some contrast. These are typically done uh, for MR arthrography. So that's why there's not a whole lot of dense contrast. This is all MR contrast. Gadolinium doesn't show up well on an x-ray. So this child will then move on to the MRI. And then here you can see a wrist being done. And the, for the wrist, you inject it, and then you also have the child move their wrist under fluoroscopy because where the contrast goes in a wrist can also help the MSK radiologist diagnose. So in, at Jefferson, we have multiple subspecialists, pediatric radiologists, neuroradiologists, MSK radiologists, interventional radiologists. So there's, you really do get subspecialty reads with all these cases. Okay, enough of those. Abscess strains. We do these every week for appendicitis, probably two, multiple times a week. Uh, ultrasound is the modality of choice for initial workup for appendicitis, as you all probably know. Um, CT is reserved for difficult cases and complications like perforation or abscesses. And these drains we place with ultrasound or CT depending on the depth of the abscess and the trajectory where you have to go. We obviously try to do everything over here with ultrasound as much as possible. Uh, but when we can't, we go to CT. So I'll show you what a CT case looks like. This one was actually quite challenging. So here, this is a contrast-enhanced CT of a kid. There, here's the bladder, and then here's the abscess, and then here's the rectum. So you say to yourself, how are you going to get to this abscess? You've got bladder protecting it in the front, bones on the sides, rectum back here, and then these are arteries out here to the sides. So this is a really challenging case, but you don't want to open this child and do a washout, of course. So what you do, you flip them over. And now you can see a little bit easier that there's a relatively safe plane here. There are some vessels here, probably just veins, but you have to get to this one way or another. So there's always a risk of bleeding with these cases. We all know that. But this is, looks like the best trajectory to me. So you put the kid in the CT scanner. The bladder, by the way, is now full of contrast because they went from the diagnostic scan right into the procedure. Uh, so that's why the bladder is now white. Uh, so here's the rectum over here, nice and decompressed. If this child were full of stool, we would obviously have to put this off to another day, decompress the rectum, which is not uncommon. Here's the grid. Here's our planning trajectory, so we know we're gonna miss, you can't see the arteries anymore because there's no more contrast in them, but you know where they are based on bony landmark. So you try to stay as far away from there as possible. So rectum's off to the side. So here's the needle, again, you see the fingers. So now here you can see that this, the shadow of the needle is showing you where you're gonna go, it looks pretty good. Once he gets in a little bit, he's skiving off to the side, he or she, and so then you redirect you get closer, and now this abscess has a thick rind on it. Look at how the needle is actually deforming the abscess. That's a sharp trocar. Um, these, these abscesses have really thick rinds on them. It really takes force to get into them. Finally, they get in. These are just the ureters coming down to the bladder, by the way. So then through that needle, a little wire will go and it'll coil. That's why you're catching little bits of it. The needle comes off, the tube goes in over that wire, 
and then you lock the tube in place, and now you maximally aspirate that abscess. So you see the pigtail of the coil there. So here's before and here's after. See how the rectum can now expand again? So uh, a lot of times we'll send these kids back up and the abscess drain, the drain bag will be empty and they'll say, well, this abscess drain isn't doing anything. And it's because we just, we took everything out. Uh, and they don't need these drains for too long, thank goodness. So chest tube placement. So this is a, a sad case of child abuse um, where the child actually has two surgically placed chest tubes, but it's still not cutting it. There's a hydropneumothorax down here that's actually causing a, a little bit of uh, tension on the child's heart. And then there's also another one up here that could only really be seen with CT, but you can also see that it's, it's very, very full. So we were consulted to do uh, chest tube placement despite the presence of large bore chest tubes. So uh, the child went into the CT scanner. You can see there's, there's definitely tension within this pocket of air and fluid. So just like the other case, the needle goes in, over this needle, a very soft catheter will be fed over the needle into the uh, air space so that the, the sharpness really is only used to get through the chest wall. Everything else is done with soft catheters and wires. So, through, so then the needle comes out, the wire goes in, tube goes in over the wire, and then you can aspirate all that air and fluid out. Now we go down to the lower collection. Needle goes in, the wire and soft catheter go in, tube goes in, when you pull the pigtail, it kind of springs back a little bit, but now you can see it's gonna safely get out all that fluid and air. So now this is the before picture, this is the after picture, and you can see now there's much less tension, uh, especially down low, of that hydropneumothorax. We can also place chest tubes for empyema. This is a rather elegant case, uh, very well done by, I think, Dr. Callan, actually. Uh, so this is the empyema. You can see it's got an enhancing rim around it. Child was very sick. Take him into the CT scanner. So here's those planning grid. And then you can see, you always want to stay in front of ribs because behind ribs, that's the same thing as under the rib where all the, the neurovascular bundle is. So you always stay in front of the rib and you can see the shadow that he's using in order to avoid lung tissue and stay only within the empyema. And so the needle goes in and then the wire goes in. Again, staying only within the empyema, not within the lung. And then the tube goes in. And everything is done over the wire to keep it very, very safe. Liver abscess, that's pretty rare in kids. Uh, but sometimes it can be a complication of perforated appendicitis and all that nastiness gets everywhere, Crohn's disease. Um, so these things need to be drained and they need to be drained for a while. So here's the liver abscess here. Again, same technique, needle in. Wire in, tube in, and then it's all gone. See, you just maximally aspirate the whole thing. Percutaneous nephrostomy tubes. So this is for obstructive uropathy. This happens, um, kids with MRCP uh, that don't get around much. Sometimes they get these staghorn calculi. They can get really large calculi that break off, get stuck in the ureter. They may have trouble getting in from below, so we can help to get in from up top. So this is an ultrasound image of a very, very dilated uh, collecting system. There's even some debris uh, within this collecting system. So whether or not the, the child was septic is unknown, but we can do this for septic uh, uropathies as well as non-septic. So um, when you do a percutaneous nephrostomy tube, there's obviously a bleeding risk because you're putting a large bore catheter through a kidney, which is obviously has a very strong blood supply. 
So when we put these in, you always go for a posterior lower pole calyx uh, into an anatomic area called the avascular plane of Brodel. Uh, it's just a relatively avascular area of the kidney. I think that's most theoretical than in practice, but anyway. So this child um, has some developmental issues, as you can tell from the spine. Um, so this is uh, the needle that's going into the kidney. So you direct the needle under ultrasound guidance, and then you convert over to fluoroscopy. So this is usually done over in IR at the hospital, although I have done them in the OR here with a C-arm. And then once the needle is in, uh, you inject some contrast to make sure that you are in the, um, the calyx of choice, which is, again, a lower pole posterior calyx. And you inject under fluoro, and the reason why this is such a large field of view, because you might be saying to yourself, oh my goodness, Alara, like, let's get that cone down, please. But you need to see the whole ureter to see if anything's getting out. Nothing's getting down this ureter, so it's a proximal obstruction. So then you cone down now. And then over that needle, I mean, through the needle goes a wire. The wire coils within any calyx, doesn't matter. And then the tube goes in. And then you squirt the tube to make sure that you're in. And there you are. So now, problem solved. The kidney can decompress. Venous malformation embolizations. This is my particular favorite thing to treat. Uh, I do, venous malformations are pretty common, actually. I've got a couple dozen patients at this point with them now. Uh, venous malformations, um, more, more seen in uh, females, they are hormonally active, so they can flare up and then calm down. Uh, they're difficult to treat. The surgery, surgery can be done. Um, it can be, depending on where the malformation is, it can be kind of morbid. These things like to bury themselves in muscle bellies. Um, they like to go into the suprapatellar bursa. So um, they like to wrap themselves around tendons. So they can be, uh, it can be a really difficult surgery. So um, these days, sclerotherapy has become a very common thing, um, and happily we can do that here. Uh, so what we do is we target them under ultrasound guidance and basically inject, it's a soap mixture, causes intentional thrombosis of the, ves of the venous malformation, and then eventually it will shrink down. Um, it usually takes a few treatments to get this done, and then they can be pain-free for years, but then come back sometimes uh, because puberty has set in. Um, other times, they just come back. It'll be with the child for their whole life, so uh, sometimes even young adults, and then adults will come in to have them retreated. Um, so here's an example of a venous malformation. There's also arterial venous malformations, which are high flow, and lymphatic malformations. So this is a venous, this is a pure venous malformation. You can see it right here on the MRI. It's very, uh, very bright, and it communicates very strongly with this uh, deep vein. So this can be a little bit uh, dangerous and challenging because you wouldn't want that sclerosant to access the deep venous system. Not only will they get DVT, but they could also get PE. Uh, so it can be uh, a challenge, but we use uh, various methods to prevent that from happening. Um, so what you do is you just uh, target it under ultrasound, and you can see here it's embedded in the muscle. You could imagine how morbid that surgery would be. Um, so uh, this is one in the suprapatellar area. So you just target it under ultrasound with a needle, and then you inject it with contrast. That's important to see where the contrast goes, because that's where your sclerosin is going to go. So if it does communicate with the deep veins, you can put uh, a pneumatic cuff up around the thigh and compress it so that the 
there's no outflow. You wait till it clots in that venous malformation, and then you slowly let the cuff down, watching the whole time. If you start seeing that contrast escape out, you just put it right back up. Keeps the patient safe. Uh, so you just keep poking away at this thing multiple times until uh, there's basically nowhere else to poke under ultrasound. And then you follow them up in a few weeks, and in this patient, you can see the deep vein is, this is pre, this is post. The deep vein is still patent, but the vascular malformation is shrinking. And she'll, this patient will always have this malformation. You only treat for pain. Um, I did do one for uh, cosmesis because the child, although the child wasn't having any pain, the malformation was right by the malleolus, and the child had to buy two pairs of shoes. Be and it was, these were like expensive Catholic school shoes because the, the feet were different sizes because of the malformation. So uh, eventually we shrunk it down so that he could wear only buy one pair of shoes. So mom was very happy, obviously. Uh, so lymphatic malformations. These uh, are typically crop up in uh, very, very young children. So this is a, a very young child, less than a year, um, with a large lymphatic malformation in the right chest. So uh, you could, I mean, it's very obvious where it is here. It's causing uh, compression of the right heart. This child was having symptoms of SVC syndrome. Um, and you can see here, this is the brachiocephalic artery, which is completely engulfed by this lymphatic malformation. This would obviously be a very difficult and morbid surgery. So child was sent for sclerotherapy. These lymphatic malformations can be microcystic. They can be macrocystic. Um, when they involve the head and neck region, we call upon our neurointerventional colleagues to help us with those as well, because those can be very risky with uh, airway issues. Uh, so those children are <coughs> usually sent to the ICU after. So this child had both micro and macrocystic disease. This is extraordinarily difficult to treat because where are you going to put the needle? In this one, this one, this one, this one, this one? I mean, there's just too many. But luckily, there was this very large macrocystic area as well. So what you do is under ultrasound guidance, you get a tube in there. And you can put another tube in there. And you keep going. This is a, a floral uh, example of how the tube is placed. This was done using trocar technique. So what I've shown you so far has been very consistent. Needle, wire, tube. This one, that's called Seldinger technique. This is called trocar technique, where the tube is loaded on over, you can see here it's a sharp needle. So the tube is right on the needle, so you just poke directly into the collection, and then you thread, you can see the first image, the tube is being thread over that needle directly into the collection. It's pretty fast, and it's safe with large collections. Something small, it's kind of tough to trocar through uh, skin and muscle to get into something, so that's why we typically use Seldinger, but this child's malformation was quite large. Very, very safe to do it under the trocar technique. So you can see here the usage of the Alara principle. At first it was a huge chest view. This was done intentionally to look for any venous communication because lymphatic malformations can sometimes be mixed with the venous system. So if this was directly communicating with the right heart, and you injected sclerosant into there, you would have a big problem. So uh, we inject, we cone down. This injection is done maximally to find out how much volume that thing can take. Then you aspirate everything you can and replace it with a sclerosant. We can use doxycycline, bleomycin, 
uh, sotradecol, alcohol. Uh, we have a whole different array of sclerosins we can use in order to treat these things. So then, more ultrasound images. You just keep going, keep going. You get the biggest pockets you can. Uh, so this was his second round. So he came in, and this time he was stuck in four different areas. And you just keep going and keep going. These kids need to be done multiple times in order to treat these things because they just keep, they either keep coming back or you, you just run out of fluoro time because you don't want to radiate the same area. They'll get skin burns. Um, so you have to be very judicious with radiation. So this is the before picture. This is the after picture. So now you can actually see the black is aerated lung. His lung is opening back up. This is wonderful. There's much less mass effect upon the SVC in the right heart. Brachiocephalic artery is still completely engulfed. But what you'll notice here is this is a T2 image. T2 is an MRI image. It just means that fluids are bright on T2. So here's the fluid-filled stomach down here. So you've got like this one macrocystic area left. That could be treated. But look at how this is all just kind of gray with tiny, tiny areas left of uh, T2 signal. So this is almost all microcystic left. So for the rest of this to get treated, if you even have to, it would probably have to be resected because this really is not gonna be well treated percutaneously. But there's still some uh, loculations up here and this one that could be treated. So I just outlined in red for you here showing you how much was done purely through percutaneous sclerotherapy. Um, so it really helped him as well. Okay, tumor ablation and embolization. So luckily this is not a very common pediatric procedure. Hepatic lesions um, that we can do ablation on, I mean we can pretty much ablate or embolize anything, either percutaneously using microwave, uh, cryotherapy, freezing it, or RFA using radiofrequency uh, to burn it. Um, or we can use a transarterial embolization either with bland uh, particles, uh, which will plug up the arteries and kill tumor, um, or with chemo, which is, not, which is mostly done on the adult side. We won't get into that. Um, but there is a form of HCC, the fibrolamellar type, which is typically in the 20 to 40-year-old, but has been seen in the teen years as well. Um, so uh, hemangioendotheliomas uh, typically are obviously surgically resected if they can be. But what we can do is uh, we can embolize them uh, in a preoperative way to make the surgeries safer. Um, hepatic adenomas, uh, young women on uh, OCPs, uh, these confer a bleeding risk, especially if they're subcapsular, they can rupture. Uh, so we can embolize those as well. Um, osteoid osteomas, very, very, very painful lesions. We use RFA ablation, uh, RFA to ablate them um, percutaneously for pain control. Bone metastases, painful bone metastases for palliation. Um, renal masses, uh, usually cryotherapy. Again, that's more of an adult problem, but anything on the adult side, we can obviously absolutely translate into the pediatric population as well. Um, so we embolize for cure, pain control, bleeding control, preoperative setting, and palliation. Uh, so I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get to trauma as well, um, but hemangioendotheliomas, uh, most frequent tumor in infancy, they can cause life-threatening heart failure from AV shunting. So if a child cannot have surgery, too young for surgery, or whatever reason, they're in heart failure, we can shut down that AV shunt, get them primed up so that they can eventually have surgery. Uh, hepatic hemangiomas, they can cause high output failure again, 
consumptive coagulopathies, hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia. Again, we can shut those down to make them more safely uh, resected. Uh, hepatic adenomas, we already went over, HCC, hepatoblastomas. So uh, fortunately, I don't have any hepatoblastomas in my cadre of cases that I've done here yet, so I had to borrow this one from endovascular today. But this child, they did want to do surgery on this, but they wanted to devascularize it first and shrink it before the surgery to make it less morbid. This is an angiogram. This is a catheter in the hepatic artery showing you this huge vascular mass here. So you just get out here and then you just shoot tiny uh, resin beads into the artery. It shuts the artery down and the tumor will start to necrose and shrink. The liver will be fine because 75% of the liver's blood supply comes from the portal vein anyway. So you can completely take out a hepatic artery, the liver will be fine. Um, so here's the post image, and you can see how much it has shrunk, making the surgery a lot safer. Osteoid osteoma, this is uh, Dr. Foster's case, actually. So this is the little osteoid osteoma here. A little thing like that causes intractable pain. These kids cannot sleep, they can't walk, uh, and these, this is a very classic appearance. It's got a little uh, very dense center surrounded by a lucent surround. So this is the sagittal view, and it's right in the joint. That makes this a very difficult lesion to treat, both surgically and percutaneously. Here's the axial, you can barely even see it, but there's the, there's the nidus, and then there's the uh, hypodense surround. So um, this is the MRI. So that tiny little lesion, this is normal bone marrow. See how dark it is? This is the bone marrow where that osteoid osteoma is. You can see how much edema, T2 bright, see? Here's the bladder, T2, fluid bright. Look at all this bone marrow edema, and not just bone marrow edema, but edema in the soft tissues all around it, edema within the joint. This child was in an incredible amount of pain. So you put them under, you get them in the CT scanner, you plan your approach. Now you can't even see it. You, you can't see the osteoidosteoma while you're doing the ablation. You target it based on bony landmark alone. So here's the probe, and you can kind of see the osteoidosteoma maybe right there, and then you just burn it. And while this was being burned, you can't see it in this plane because this is a single slice, but there was also another uh, spinal needle in the joint continuously irrigating the joint with cold saline to protect it from getting burned. So he actually did well for about two months, and then five months later he had recurrence of pain and the nidus came back. So uh, we're gonna have to, this is actually very recent, so we're gonna um, have to repeat it again. Um, but at least he got two months of relief, which is good news that you know, he will likely respond from again. So now we'll uh, get into trauma. I'll show you liver trauma and I'll show you renal trauma. So uh, liver trauma, so this is a CT scan. I'm gonna scroll through it. We'll go through it a couple times so you can see. This is 16 year old uh, at the bus stop versus crowbar. Uh, so here's the liver here, and then all around the liver you see this, this is all blood. And then there's also blood over here, and I think there's probably stomach and bowel in here. So you can instantly see over here there's something wrong. So this is bleeding in the liver, and you can actually watch the blood go out of the liver. So just focus over here. Oops, sorry. And it's just pouring. Out. So you can see here, if you watch the artery, you can see the artery that's actually responsible for the bleeding squiggling right there. I'll scroll through a little bit. Sorry. See that? So you know 
that it's the right hepatic artery, obviously based on the anatomy. So the treatment is to um, embolize that artery completely. Uh, so you take him into the angio suite. Uh, you get access to the aorta, to, through the common femoral vein, into the aorta. And this is the first image. Now, based on this image alone, this, you can tell this person is in shock. The arteries are very thready, they're thin, they're clamped down. Um, so look at, this is the GDA, okay, the gastroduodenal artery, that is clamped down. So this child is in a lot of trouble. And then as you um, do a, a more delayed scan, the liver parenchyma isn't enhancing beautifully and blushing. It's very patchy because the child's in shock. So you have to move quickly with this. So with the catheter right here, you just inject that gel foam and you just inject, 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 either in torpedoes or in a slurry. And it just plugs up the arteries and stops the bleeding. And so now, I think I have them side by side. So you can see here, this is before and this is after. So this is the right hepatic artery going out here to where the child was bleeding. This is the left hepatic artery and then the GDA like I showed you. Here you can see there's complete cutoff of the right hepatic artery. There is no longer flow going into the liver from the right hepatic artery, which like I said is fine because the portal vein is still okay. Um, and the left hepatic artery is over here. And you can already see the size of the GDA here versus the size of the GDA here. As soon as the gel foam went in, the child's pressure immediately started rising. It was, it was tangible, you could see it. And you can see it on your angio image that all the vessels are now plumping up. So it's very uh, satisfying uh, to see that kind of result. Okay, renal trauma. This is a car accident, avulsion injury. So this is a slice through the abdomen, and here's liver, here's left kidney. This is not the kidney, this is all blood. So where's the kidney? So we're gonna scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll, and this is all blood. Scroll and scroll, still no kidney. Scroll, there's the kidney. And this is an avulsion injury to the kidney. Now luckily the main renal artery was okay, otherwise this would have been a very different story. Would not have come to interventional radiology if the main renal artery was avulsed. Uh, but it was just a small branch doing all of this damage. There's also some urine in there because he had a, um, a ureteral injury as well, but this is all active extravasation of blood. So this child obviously was in extremis. Um, and here's the main renal artery itself. So you could follow it and you know it's okay, but there's some little branch in here causing all this trouble. So we take him to angio. So here's the catheter in the aorta, and then, so here's the hepatic artery, splenic artery, SMA, left renal artery, and then the right renal artery, look at how much it's pulled down. All that blood is pushing it way, way down. And then you can see blood, look, pouring out right there. So that's, I'll go through it one more time. So based on this image, you can see the main renal artery is okay, the main rami are okay, and then if you look here, you can see this blush of contrast as it blooms and then migrates away. So you know that's who's at fault. Okay, so we'll go to the next image. So you get into that branch, here's the anterior and posterior rami, and then there you go, there's the blush as it builds and grows. So what you do is you get a tiny, tiny little catheter, you go into this artery, you find, oops, you find that little artery, and then you snake into it, right like this. See how the microcatheter follows the exact contour of that tiny arterial branch? And then you put coils out there. 
You don't do gel foam in this kind of injury. Uh, the decision uh, as to what embolic material to use is based on the mechanism of injury and what you're trying to do. Like in that liver, we use gel foam. That's a temporary agent. It'll dissolve in two weeks. Those arteries will come back. The important thing is to just get the kid safe so that he doesn't die. In this case, this artery is never coming back. It's avulsed, it's torn. So you just coil it to make it stop. So the first coil I put in actually went into the retroperitoneum uh, because it was just ripped off. The coil just floated right out. So I pulled back a little bit and then buried my, so this coil you see here is just somewhere in the renal hilum. Um, these coils are in this portion of the artery, this portion of the artery. And then you do a repeat angiogram and it's no longer bleeding. The kid has, does have a little bit of a, a renal injury here from, that, uh, from the avulsion, it's probably a, a contusion. That might come back, might not. So here's the before and here's the after. So you can see the coils right there in this little branch right there. And then he did fine. Okay, so that's all my images. We finished just in time. This is how to reach us. Uh, during business hours, 23597, we'll get you to the IR workflow coordinator. You guys also have a workflow coordinator here. I know you guys all know her number. If it's an emergency or off hours, there's a 24-7 phone number that you can use. Um, you can also tiger text to any of us. We're all really friendly and are willing to basically do anything to help you guys out. So thank you.